LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Gary Lachman, who joins us to discuss his book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity, and Coincidence. Can we see the future in our dreams? Does time flow in one direction? What might our dreams be trying to tell us? What is the nature of synchronicity or meaningful coincidence? Is there really any difference between the dream world and so-called reality? Renowned esoteric writer Gary Lachman has been recording his own precognitive dreams for 40 years. In this unique and intriguing book, he recounts the discovery that he dreams ahead of time and argues convincingly that this extraordinary ability is, in fact, shared by all of us. Dreaming ahead of time is a personal exploration of precognition, synchronicity and coincidence drawing on the work of thinkers including J.W. Dunn, J.B. Priestley and Carl Jung. Lachman's description and analysis of his own experience introduces readers to the uncanny power of our dreaming minds and reveals the illusion of our arbitrary distinctions between past, present and future. Hello and welcome, Gary, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to be on once again. Gary, today we're going to be talking about your latest books just come out, and that's entitled Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity and Coincidence. Um, as per usual, just before we dive into that, for listeners who don't know, just say a, a quick word about your background and your work in general. Oh, uh, well, I've written quite a few books um, having to deal with, uh, I guess, what's known as the Western inner tradition or Western esoteric tradition and also its um, influence on um, culture and uh, related uh, topics such as consciousness and things of that sort. Um, and um, this particular book is um, one about my own experiences. I usually sort of write biographies of um you know, main figures in this field or kind of surveys of aspects of it. But this is more a uh, personal work of mine where I'm talking at, at uh, quite a bit about a series of dreams I had over quite a few years now, uh, actually decades, <laughs> in which bits and pieces of the future turn up. Now, throughout the book, you mentioned that it's personal nature. You do, of course, reference many writers and thinkers and researchers who, whose work you have commented on and written about over the years when relevant to the topic at hand. Um, so we'll, we'll start talking about your, your dream journal, basically you've been keeping all these years in just a moment. A memory or thought that I like to share when talking about dreams is my uh, experience as a child 
was having, you know, I've had very interesting dreams all my life. I think most people's dreams are interesting with a capital I, to say the least. But I do remember any time that I awoke, having had anything disturbing in my dreams or anything that I didn't like or anything that was bad, and however I judged that to be, the adults would say, it's just a dream uh. or it's not real. And I never really understood that because I thought, well, certainly when you're you're in the dream space, that experience is at least as real as anything else from, you know, waking reality. And then many years later, I had a very disturbing dream. The only really dream I've ever had, I've had certainly what people would call nightmares, but this particular dream took place in the late 90s, early 2000s. I don't quite recall now. And in the dream, I was basically turning into a werewolf. And it was it was such a terrifying experience. You know, I could feel, oh, just think American werewolf, werewolf in London, you know, that transmogrification. And it was so terrifying, it woke me up. This is not, uncom- not uncommon with bad dreams. And it was still dark, although it was a, probably approaching dawn. But it's the only time that I was so disturbed by a dream, I had to open the curtains, let the light in, and sit up in bed and be awake for a while. And obviously, this faded. The feeling faded quite quickly. <laughs> was, was there a full moon at the time? Um, I, 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 I have no idea. I didn't. I didn't have the presence. You go back and look. Well, you could check possibly. But no, I just curious. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have the presence of mind to look at that. Um, however, I, I mentioned that particular dream stroke nightmare because it, that reminded me when that happened. I thought. And the adult said that, you know, it's just a dream. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's one of the, the, the most full on, you know, experiences I've had in mm-hmm. my entire life. And it took place, you know, when I was in, in the dream space. Mm. So, uh, but yeah, but we can get started. How well, we- I mean, reality has, you know, comes in different shapes and sizes. And um, <clears throat> one of the people that I do talk about in the book, um, J.B. Priestley, who's um, not read as much as he used to be or, or should, but um, he was very well known, very popular in the 20th century. Um, and um, he he said, I mean, dreams are very important to him, and he was what he called the time haunted man. Um, he was haunted by the mystery of time and also the mystery of dreams. But he says, um, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says that you know the most significant important um tremendous experience i've ever had came in a dream and i have uh less evidence for it than i do for having had a cold <laughs> or uh you know a, a broken fingernail or something. well actually I mean, there's I... absolutely there's the mean the, you know we all know the reason why people say it's only a dream it's not real is that it's not something that takes place in our usual sensory external physical kind of world it takes place inside our heads metaphorically um and we tend to consider that only subjective or only psychological and that kind of thing but as i say in the book i mean and you just said and and others and um have said the same thing is that you can often experience um a greater reality uh, in in the sense of like the reality being even more you know we talk about hd and and you know vr and all that but some dreams have this kind of crackle it's kind of crystal clear, um, um, vibrant, pristine kind of reality, unlike you know anything we ever experience really in, in everyday life. Well, actually, funny you should mention that that Priestley quote because I made a note of that because it resonated with me because I, I wholeheartedly agreed. Now, that werewolf nightmare aside, 
I would definitely agree with Priestley about some of the most meaningful and uh, experiences taking place in the dream space. In fact, uh, from your book, uh, he remarked that, quote, the most meaningful and the most ecstatic moments, uh, end quote, he had ever known occurred in a dream. And yet, quote, I have for it less visible evidence than I have for a slight cold in the head or a broken fingernail, end quote. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought I, I understood that, you know, it really made a lot of sense to me indeed. Um, I mean, and in and, and, and one way, you, you, if you think about that, that would be true of almost all of our deep, meaningful experiences. You listen to a piece of music and, you know, it, it moves you in this tremendous way, but it takes place in, in, in inwardly, it takes place inside. And, you know, we can't quantify that. We can't um, register that on any sort of measurable device. And if uh, let's hope we never can. My God, there may be a future when we can. <laughs> I hope that isn't the case. Um, but you know what I mean? These are the sorts of things that um, are tremendously powerful and, and meaningful, but they, they're not, um, they're as of nothing almost in, in terms of any kind of sensory experience or, or quantifiable, measurable um, fact. Well, I think this is where scientific materialism of the hardcore fundamentalist variety goes wrong and where transhumanists go wrong really is misunderstanding the nature of, of these experiences and you know, the most important experiences we have in life and basically, you know, just paraphrasing what you've said, um, you know, are not quantifiable or measurable. And, you know, science has got very little to say about them, you know, at all. And a lot of them are actually dismissed. Um, so you said about the dreams, it's just a dream. A lot of these experiences are dismissed. You know, the ineffable beauty of a sunset or that feeling of like, falling in love or whatever mm. and the most important things that happen to us that we just struggle to put into words you know it's it's the it's the um the currency of, of poets and musicians isn't it mm. and, and artists mm. to yeah. try and express something of this yeah yeah well um, it's like uh, george steiner who passed away a year or two ago uh, uh, uh one of the last mandarins of um high literature and and um high culture and all that but uh, he said our dictionaries lag behind our needs Meaning that, you know, we don't have the language to be able to talk about these things. Oh, we do, but it's in this world that you say of poetry and music, all that, which, you know, we, we give lip service to and recognize as being important. But when then it comes down to it, you know, we, we, we tend to um, accept science as, as the only arbiter of that. But again, but, but in the dream, well, that's the whole thing. I mean, the whole thing is like it's only a dream. Well, I mean, in some senses, that, that, that's good. I mean, you were happy to wake up from the werewolf dream and know that you aren't a werewolf. I mean, we've all had experiences when we've been in dreams, nightmares, or some crazy situation, and you wake up from it and you think, oh, whoa, <laughs> you know, I haven't lost all my teeth, or, you know, or uh, whatever it might be. Uh, so that's good when that happens, you know. Uh, but then at the same time, there are other dreams where um, you... You, you want it to be, you know, it, it's the opposite where you're, you know, in the bad dream, you're relieved that it's only a dream in that sense, meaning that it's not part of our everyday reality. But in these other dreams that are more meaningful and, and deep, uh, the sort of big dreams um, Priestley talks about and, and others, and he's hearkening to Jung, but sort of archetypal sorts of dreams. I mean, wow, those kinds of dreams, as you say, well, you know, I, I don't care if it's only a dream or not, but those are the ones that have that tremendous impact. Uh, on us well i went through a phase and this was pre-pandemic just to, by the way in case anybody's wondering of having the most appalling 
apocalyptic dreams mm. about, about the absolute destruction of everything sometimes oh, sometimes on the earth uh sometimes beyond the earth and um uh, that i'm glad to say that's kind of come to an end but that's just to sort of presage a thought where i've noticed i mean i've noticed this probably if i'm honest all my life but the different phases in life that the dreams seem to this is the one very important function they seem to perform for me and i'm sure for lots of other people they seem to reflect back something of my state of mind and in waking consciousness and and how i'm conducting myself in life and i notice that the more i am on a path i feel i'm supposed to be on the more i'm doing what i know to be the right thing and and not doing what i'm not supposed to be doing then the more dreams seem to take on uh, you know sort of a, a coherence mm. and um you know a positivity and i if i'm not doing the right thing whatever that looks like any type of bad behavior you can imagine right? you know just anything you, you, you know I, I don't mean that you know in terms of like physical stuff but you know but you, you're you're de- you're deviating you're deviating sure from, sure sure you, I, know, I know exactly what you you're mean. deviating yeah. from your path i yeah. get i get pushback in the mm. dream world and i know what it's telling me it's telling me don't be doing that mm, this mm. isn't right you know what to do and then you fall back you step back onto the path again mm. and the dreams seem to uh you know do they come back into coherence as well it's very interesting mm. well this is uh what jung uh, said the uh, dreams their function or purpose or their teleology um was that they were had a, a compensatory you know um rela- relationship to our conscious attitudes and if our conscious attitudes become too one-sided and narrow and too fixed or uh, to the expense of other um, perspectives on a particular situation or, you know, ourselves or whatever it might be, then the, the dream um, comes up with a story, a narrative, a symbol somehow to compensate for that. And, um, I mean, again, it's this is the thing. It's uh, sadly... Um, we tend to be the worst possible person to in- interpret our own dreams because our dreams are what we are not conscious of. We're, we're, we're just not aware. I mean, you know, again, um, there's, there's different levels. I mean, you know, there's some dreams that are just nervous thoughts and you're just on the surface of stuff and it's just you kind of thinking, you know, subconsciously. So, but the dreams that come from the deeper layers, uh, from that, other side of ourselves that's part of us or, or that we are part of um it's that part of us that we're not conscious of and so you and i you know the conscious uh, greg and gary the or, or, or verbal you know the eyes egos that use language um uh, we're not going to necessarily immediately understand all the symbols and all that and that sadly i'm not making a pitch for therapists but this is why you know traditionally there have been you know, the dream interpreters, whether it's a psychologist or the shaman or, you know, someone else you go to. Um, but someone who sort of knows you, ah, and, and you know, can see the bits that you don't know about yourself that the dream tells you. And one of the, one of the things that I, I found really fascinating about, about sort of the history of dreams or the history of interpretation of dreams, because I have a little potted history in the book, um, about how you know dreams speak in the symbolic language, but they also tell jokes. Um, they like plays on words and wit. Um, but it, it and obviously humor takes place within a particular kind of culture, a particular language. So even the Egyptians, you know, one of the earliest people to um, understand 
that dreams can be interpreted and that they're intelligent and they have a kind of meaning and a, 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 a message of some sort. But they even said, oh, yes, they have the, you know, they tell jokes. But what would be funny to an Egypt, ancient Egyptian but not, wouldn't necessarily raise a laugh with us? Now, one thing I want to uh, sort of throw out there in a slightly confessional tone, and I'm doing this because I'd be interested to hear from any listeners or, or yourself if this has any resonance, is that I can't remember where I read it. It might have been young, but it was a long time ago. It might have just been in one of those dream interpretation manuals that used to get, you know, in the New Age bookshops, was that in dream, um, a house represents the dreamer's mind. Uh, in some mm. in some symbolic way, and when I've you know been not on the path I'm supposed to be mm. on, I've commonly had dreams of very dark, quite disturbing, very messy houses. Uh, <laughs> and I'm in the dream. I move from room to room, and I'm appalled. Mm. I'm appalled at the state of the house. Mm. And sometimes there are there are commonly food scraps. And there are com mm. there are commonly insects. Mm. Now, I'm, uh, this is just something that's so vivid and so unpleasant. Um, oh. But this, Greg, is, yes. Uh, uh, how long have you been having these dreams, Greg? Sorry, <laughs> that, that that's my therapist's voice. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell 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 me again about your relationship with your mother. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, this is the thing. It's um, um, yeah. I mean, um, I I. I it, the jokes that dreams tell are not necessarily very subtle. They're very straightforward. They're actually kind of, and, and uh, you know, quite straightforward and um, sometimes very gross. Um, and likewise, any other messages are just kind of, um, you know, so yeah, you, whatever, you've, you've taken the wrong path. So, you know, uh, say like Dante, who found himself, you know, in a dark wood, um, in middle age, he had discovered that he had gone off the path and he found himself in the dark woods. You found yourself in, in these nasty flats or these, these places or houses. And I mean, you know, you know, um, it, it makes, again, I, I don't know what was going on in your life at the time. So, you know, and, and if you remember, you might be able to, you know, ah, now I understand why that was happening. Because one thing that can help us individually interpret our dreams is to give some space, uh, some time. To them, so you write them down, but don't 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 try to read them immediately. You know, just let them go for several months, actually, and then you can read them back as a series. And because you have a bit of distance from um, what was happening at the time you were having the dreams, um, you you, you um, could be able to see, you know, um, what they're saying and all and and all that. Uh, and um, I mean, this is. Um, this is one of the things, but I mean, one of the things I do in the book is I'm, I'm, I'm not so much interpreting the dreams, which is a, a whole other thing, is that is um, having these strange experiences in them, these kind of temporal displacements, where you know something that would happen to me later on that day, in the morning I wake up, or maybe you know two days later or in the week, or I mean, a couple of examples I, I give it's a, there's quite a bit of time in between, there's a, a few years. Um, it, uh, I've had this, I've already experienced it, ah, in the dream. So, oh, that was only a dream. And then, well, what was only a dream actually turned out to be, to be real. And that's the precognitive aspect of it. And again, one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, we, we, we've heard lots of stories about, you know, people having premonitions. Um, and what we usually hear about in terms of dreams of the future are what I call the two Ds. 
there's the disaster dreams or the Darby dreams. You know, so somebody wins at the races, somebody dreams a series of winners, and there's you know quite a few accounts of that. Or um, sadly, there are dreams presaging some disaster. You said you were having these apocalyptic sorts of dreams. One of the things, because I, I was writing the book and I was reading and researching it during the, the first lockdown, and I wondered if people, you know, were having sort of dreams about lockdown or just, you know, disease or something along these lines um, prior to it happening. Um, and I, I tweeted about it a bit, but I, in the end, I didn't have, I didn't have the space to be able to, um, add stuff like that. But one of the things that was strange was when I was going through my dream journals, uh, cause, cause the book goes back to dreams recorded in, in about 1980. So it's the last 40 years or wrote it in 2020. So by now it's 42 years is that, um, <clears throat> a dream from sometime in the 1990s, I think in 1998, in it, someone tells me to stay at home, don't go out. There's no reason to go out. Stay at home where it's safe. And this was smack in the middle of the first lockdown when that was the message that you heard everywhere around you. You know, all the media surrounding me were telling me to stay at home. And so, strangely enough, I came across a dream from, I don't know, uh, 20, 20 years earlier or 22 years earlier, um, giving me that message at the time I was hearing it. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily call the dream precognitive, but I, I would think it's one of those things that Jung would have called the synchronicity. Yeah, well, you mentioned precognition there and precognitive dreams, and dreams do appear to take place. Uh, well, they're, they're, they appear to be sort of outside of time and space as we think of them. And for me, the 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 one of the reasons are so important because they actually call into question whether time and space are are actually fundamental to reality, and. I think that the more attention you pay to uh, the the dreamscape, especially when it seems to have some kind of influence or overlap, you know, with mm. with waking reality, the more I think that 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 time and space is being fundamental are called in or is called into question, and that's also something that uh, I've been exploring, and I know you have as well from other avenues as well, you know, and even cutting edge science is calling this into question. You know, for example, you, you talked about there's the I can't remember the, the story of the parable of, you know, the arrow uh, going from one point to another, but it oh, never, uh, never uh, moves. What's this one of Zeno's paradoxes? Yeah. And there's then the idea of dividing time up into smaller and smaller portions. And you get to something that's called Planck length. And then this is like a scientific established scientific uh, concept mm. and that Planck time is a time it would take a, a photon traveling at the speed of light to cross a distance equal to the Planck length, which in itself is the scale at which classical ideas about gravity and space time mm. cease mm. to be valid. So science is basically saying at some point, what we take to be fundamental breaks down. Mm. And in dreams as a past, present and future appear to be accessible. I think it's not just in in the dream space, I think you then get into the realms of, of parapsychology and other uh, oh. what's down as paranormal and supernatural experiences that some people have in waking reality. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, Zeno's paradox is, well, it, it's the idea that uh, we it, it's 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 basically a logical paradox in the sense that um, you know um, um, some an archer release, releases a bow. And it's on its way to hit the target. But we can always divide whatever space is between 
where the arrow is at any point and and the target itself so uh, he releases the bow at some point it's halfway there and then okay another point it's half of that another point it's half of that another point is half of that and we can continually 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 you know divide it and it never you know logically because of that it never actually hits the bow uh, hits the target and so this is part of this Parmenidian tradition, um, early Greek pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides, who's saying that change is an illusion, and he was kind of the opposite of later came after him was Heraclitus, who said actually you know the, you know, the stability is the illusion, you know change is um, the, the only truth, and we can never step into the same river twice. I think he even really said we can't even step into it once, but in some, but uh, uh, anyway. So but the, but the, the, so there's that uh, yeah I mean. One of the things I don't, you know, really look at very much of, uh, in the book is sort of scientific notions of time. And I, 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 I have seen um, some of the talks I've given about it. People have said, oh, you know, you, what about entropy and the arrow of time and all that? I mean, these are ways that things are measured. But, I mean, entropy works because things change because there's process. So there's a certain process, processes taking place in the physical universe where things run down. Um but that's the measure we have of time, and it moves in a certain direction. So, you know, um, energy gets dissipated, and um, there's always more random energy, more kind of junk energy given off than um, any usable energy. So eventually it'll, you know, the heat death and all that kind of thing uh, will happen. But that, again, that's... We assume that, that those processes take place within a medium that we call time, but without the processes taking place, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have it. If you had a completely stable, you know, physical universe where nothing broke down, razor blades didn't get dull, uh, iron didn't rust, there would be no processes going on, and we wouldn't have an hour of time. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's whether there's this actual kind of stuff called time, uh, um, that, I'm, I'm not, I'm, it's, it's, how should we say it? The phenomena take place. The experiences take place. Um, whether in our everyday TikTok time, and I don't mean the social media app. <laughs> I mean the clock ticking away as it <laughs> used, used to back in the day before digital clocks. Uh, and, or the, the temporal anomalies. I mean, those things happen. But it, uh, one of the things I do talk about in the book is the idea like there might not, there might not be the stuff that we call time. No, um, I, I don't. Th I don't think there is. Um, I've, yeah. done, I've done a couple of shows, you know, based mm. entirely on, on on talking about concepts of time. Mm. But no, I, I think it's a matter of perception. Basically, in our uh, waking reality, you know, with uh, three dimensions, five senses, I think that it's a concept that allows us to organize experience and perception mm. in in a sort of a way that fits, as it were. You know, we're trying to say, okay, we know what's happening: the past, you know, the present, the future. Um, you know, that when we can put it across this, this line from one, you know, from the, from one side of whatever to another. But I think that's why I mentioned time and space not being fundamental. Um, I, you know, I'm thinking of them as, as a lot of people think of time and space as some kind of, you know, X axis or Y axis or some kind of scaffolding on which, you know, the cosmos, the universe, reality is, is kind of hanging, it's suspended. Well, I mean, apparently, to, to, I mean, we're getting into philosophy here, and I talk about it a bit um, um, in the book. Uh, you know, this is Kant, you know, we have certain categories through which we actually have experience. So it may not be the case that in the ding on Zeke, the thing in itself, time and space as we understand it, um, are things that, you know, 
um, it participates in. But for us to have any kind of experience, Kant said, um, well, you know, very influential German philosopher from the uh, late uh, 18th century, um, he said that, you know, we, we have to, we can't, because I say in the book, you know, we can't conceive of a totally static universe. We can't conceive of anything not happening. Um, uh, th there's a, quite a few things that we can't actually, th the, you know, as we say, the mind boggles at them. And e even if, you know, in, in quantum physics or whatever it might be, they can do the math and say, aha, here, yes, th this, this happens. It's still not something that we can conceptualize, though, you know. Um, the math may say this must be the case, but we can't visualize it in any way. Uh, just like the whole notion of time um, flowing. This is the Newtonian, you know, equable time, you know, flowing at the same rate in all directions everywhere. So a, a, an hour lasts just as long here as it does in whatever galaxy that's 25 light years away from us. Um, um, but if time flows, okay, so the analogy is with the river, but where, where are the river's banks? You know, we never get to the banks of the river. Um, um, because if you're on the banks of the river to watch it flow, then you must be in a different time itself. And so, and this gets into the whole, you know, precognitive thing again, um, getting back to J.W. Dunn or just bringing him into the conversation, who's the, who's the fellow who gets the whole precognitive dream thing going. He's the guy who writes his book in the early 20s, Experiment with Time, where he just by chance discovers that bits and pieces of the future turn up in, in his dreams. And he's not an occultist or a spiritualist. He's a, he's a aerodynamics, um, engineer. Uh, but he becomes fascinated with this phenomena, this, this temporal anomaly that's happening to him. And he thinks at first that, you know, it's only happening to him. And, and he's, you know, some, um, he's somebody who's afflicted with this, with this strange malady. But then he discovers through a series of chance events that other people have similar sort of experiences. And then he realizes this is something that's common to all of us. But it must mean that our usual everyday notion of time moving in one direction, constant, that Newtonian flow, can be correct. And so, but he develops a whole, uh, you know, uh, ultimately unsatisfying philosophy, serialism, which, which, which postulates different, different levels of time, different times, you know, it's time one, time two, time three, and so on. So you finally get to the ultimate sort of observe, unobserved observer, um, some, some deity of sorts or, you know, um, universal mind, um, behind which there's no further time. But what's interesting is that, you know, Priestley said we don't need this infinite regress, we, uh, we can understand precognitive dreams and their importance if we just stick to the first three, three levels of time. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>